0: Claire Wills, good morning. Um, Claire. you're second generation Irish. You're a professor of English literature at Cambridge, but you've written this extraordinary book. It's called Missing Persons Are My Grandmother's Secrets? And it's the story of your family, but it is also the story of tens of hundreds of thousands of Irish families. In a way, it's it's a story of Ireland. So your grandmother, Molly, was forced into making a terrible choice. Uh, Her son, your uncle, got a girl pregnant. Molly refused to accept this situation. And I think in doing so, she ruined a lot of lives, really, down the generations. And we'll get into the details of that. But I suppose the book, it's kind of you trying to understand why your grandmother and why so many like her uh,
1: did what she did. Yeah, it's... I think of it as a kind of attempt to understand a culture of secrecy. Um, I wanted to try and tell the history of the mother and baby homes, perhaps from another perspective, from the point of view of the families who got involved in them. And, you know, if you remember when the commission of investigation into mother and baby homes Produced its report in March 2020. One of the shocking things that they said was you know, okay, church and state did bad things, but the principal responsibility for the women in the homes lay with their parents, the parents of the women and girls who got pregnant, and the fathers of their children. And like a great many people, I, I was really outraged by that statement. Uh, it seemed to me to be a way of trying to avoid, um, avoid any kind of economic uh, responsibility or, or or moral responsibility on the part of the church and the state. But I also thought it doesn't explain anything. I mean, why did they? Why did families? Why did fathers? Why did mothers? Why did people choose themselves to go into mother and baby homes? That was the kind of problem I was trying to answer in, in writing right. this book. So will we start
0: with Molly's story then, your grandmother? And I think I think as we go, it will illuminate the, the, the broader issues as we go along. So your grandmother, Molly, so she's born in 1891 into a, a completely different era. And really, it starts then at the thread of secrets. You suspect that one of what Molly thought of as her sisters was actually... Uh, her mother, well, it's, but, but again, this is back to the secrets. There were kind of women had maybe practical ways of dealing with these secrets then and protecting the people involved.
1: Yeah, I think if you think about the 1880s and 1890s, um, rural Ireland, people without many resources, without any power, the last thing you wanted to have anything to do with was any kind of authority, authority was workhouses it was the ric it was it was the other side and i think you know men and women were very good at whatever you say say nothing keeping silent about stuff silence is as much as secrets i think we're talking about Mm -hmm. um and women even more so women had so little control over their own lives so little autonomy and particularly their sexual lives so if you fell pregnant you needed you needed help from other women. It's very common to have informal ways of managing that situation. Um, a child brought up by a relative, by an aunt or by a grandmother, or so on. Um, and I think I think people got used to this. in that in that culture. I think secrecy was a form of care, a form. Yeah, because
0: of, there's a, there's more compassion in absolutely. what people did to manage these situations back then, wasn't there?
1: Well, I think in the end, when, when secrecy became kind of um, handed over to a bureaucratic institution when the mother and baby homes arrived, yeah. I think it was very hard to, ma- to, to keep the compassionate element. Um, people thought... I, it's almost as though I think of my grandmother as someone who didn't have any defences against the institution. She'd been brought up in a culture of keeping things secret, keeping things private, because that was how you looked after people. And then when the institutions came along and said, we'll keep your secrets for you, we'll keep your your intimate, private, we'll take your problems and we'll deal with them out of sight. I'm, I'm not just talking about my grandmother, I'm talking about... Something like everybody's grandmother, really. Um, you, you know, it must have seemed absolutely the right thing to do.
0: Okay, okay. So, so that's the that's that generation. So that is, if you will, your great great grandmother uh, potentially falling pregnant outside of marriage and dealt with in that compassionate way within within a family, practical kind of solutions. Then we come to the nineteen twenties, and Molly herself. Uh, fell pregnant, again, outside of marriage. Uh, You say this was not uncommon at that stage and that sometimes it might be even deliberate to move on a a marriage situation.
1: So demographers of the late 19th century, early 20th century say this was one of the most common ways of uh, in a community where people were known to be courting or known to be matched with one another, you know, there'd be a kind of stagnation problem going on. Nobody was moving one way or the other. Nobody was kind of shifting out of the farm or blah, blah. So how do you manage that? You get pregnant, then the marriage can happen, and then things move on. Okay. It was incredibly common.
0: I know there wasn't a huge shame around this or anything. This was just something that happened.
1: Well, no, I think, I, th- I think people knew it was happening. It wasn't talked about. Again, the kind of silence kicks in. So it's not talked about. It's private, but it's not you know, deep, deeply involved in, in the kind of shame that we see later.
0: OK, but even at that stage, the, the, the situation uh, was, was changing to the, this, as you say, this more institutional situation. So in the 1920s, Molly's option at that point, if she didn't get married, was probably the workhouse.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it was 1920. It was in the middle of the Anglo-Irish War. So in fact, that wasn't an option. Um, you know, there was no workhouse in Skibreen at the time. There was no workhouse in Skull. They'd been taken over by um, by the British forces. They were they were magnets for raids and counter-raids. You know, you couldn't okay. be going there.
0: And wh- what were the workhouses when they weren't taken over by uh, the, the British soldiers? So I, if a woman fell pregnant outside of marriage, she might end up in the workhouse.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. She might if she didn't have the kind of informal yeah. fam- familial care, secret-keeping care. To, to to look after her.
0: OK, so then I think the next significant kind of thing that happens and this is important is that, so Molly does get married to yeah. her, her husband Tom. Now, they inherit money and they buy a farm. Molly has been, I think, a servant working in houses before this. This is really important. A big upwardly mobile jump. They become, in your word, they become respectable then and this is yeah. a huge thing.
1: Yeah, um, I mean I feel conflicted about this because yeah. on the on the one hand you think oh well they were just trying to re- protect their respectability and respectability now I think there's a kind of slightly kind of off tinge about it yeah. <laughs> sort of yeah. goes along with middle class or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. you know something kind of a bit mean spirited yeah, about it yeah. but I think also if you think about people with few resources maintaining respectability is sort of equivalent to Having dignity? Uh, I mean, where do you find dignity in daily life? Unless, if you haven't got money particularly and you haven't got you know, if you haven't got resources one of the ways is to be respectable and I think we need to be kind yeah. to that notion of respectability. Yeah.
0: Okay, okay. so we plant that seed there that this respectability and having the farm and everything was was very important to them. So then we come to the next generation and Molly's Son, your uncle Jackie, and Lily. Tell me about them.
1: Well, you know, what do I know about them? What I know is that Lily got pregnant in 1954 and neither Lily's parents nor my grandmother um, saw fit to think, well, we'll we'll make a marriage happen. And Lily went to Bessborough um, to have her daughter, who was my first cousin, Mary, and Jackie went to England and never came home. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's almost all I know about yeah. them.
0: Yeah. But the, the more pragmatic solutions of the past, so we're kind of gone at this stage, but also your grandmother Molly did kind of make that choice not not to accept this and maybe back to the farm and the hard won respectability and everything.
1: She did, and so did Lily's parents, yeah, you know, um this was an illegitimate child, and I think the church and everybody else was saying the way we deal with that is we use the mother and baby homes, and you know this is two years after adoption had been legalized, and I think there was a kind of sense that this this was the right way to do things it it't it not it will not they weren't being oh well. I was gonna say Cast that Cast out. Yeah. I I think it took some time for people to realise that actually what had happened was casting out. But at the time, my guess is it felt like the right thing to do. It's what everybody was saying was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um Lily went to to Bessborough, so this was nineteen fifty four Bessborough was still going then forty years later in 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 the nineties so the 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 Bessborough was interesting in that one of the things that I think a lot of people mightn't have realized is there were two types of of women slash girls in
1: Bessborough. what the private and yeah, the and the yeah. kind of council paid ones yeah yeah. Yeah. So if you went in, as I think Lily did, um, n- not paying for your place, as it were, you um, you had to kind of stay for a couple of years in order to look after your child there until they were adopted or moved on into another kind of uh, fostering out or or uh, into a, an orphanage or industrial school. Whereas the private patients could pay a hundred pounds and have their baby looked after, after they'd given birth. So there was kind of definitely two tiers.
0: And the private girls, essentially, could leave? Absolutely. Whenever they wanted, yes. really, yeah. once the baby yeah. was born. Because they had
1: paid the... Yeah. They, they, they were in effect paying for the baby to be looked after, but it was a kind of...
0: And when you say looked after
1: until um until adoption or yeah, okay. until whatever happened next
0: and would would the private girls have would the, the girls who were being paid for by the council would they have worked for their keep more and the private girls not?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean you had to stay and you know polish the floors and help run the place um, right until you'd sort of until there was a solution found for your child
0: okay. So, so we had two types of people in there then. Those who were there out, out of a kind of more of a need, maybe. Yeah. And then you had, back to that word, respectable, obviously middle class people who had a bit of money and everything sent yeah. their daughters in there.
1: Yeah. But that a, a, proves. A,
0: a, as a paid solution yeah. to a problem. Kind but
1: of. one of the things that proves is that everybody thought that, that this was the right thing to do. Yeah. It, it's so, it wasn't general-
0: economic need, just.
1: No. No, I don't think it was. I mean, uh, well, uh, that's tricky. I mean, you know, people went to England as well. But that sense that this was something private that you didn't talk about and you needed somewhere away from home to deal with the problem was, I think, general.
0: Yeah. OK, we'll come back to Lily and and her daughter Mary in a second. Jackie?
1: Jackie. Jackie went to England. Um, he never came back, Um the whole of the last part of the book is me trying to think about Jackie. Um, the men in these stories, they almost never get talked about. And it's partly because, ironically, there are fewer records. So, you, you know, if you were um, a mother who went into a mother and baby home or if you were a child born in home or if you were adopted, there are some records, mm. however exiguous, however tiny, Um But the men could sort of much more effectively disappear or stay under the radar. Um, And you get, you know, recently we had the commission of investigation and it meant that many women came forward with their stories about what life was like in there, in these homes. Um, And there's not been the same kind of outpouring from men about what it was like. So it was very, I had to do a lot of imagining Yeah, imagining what my uncle's life was like. And I think he was bewildered. He went to England. He had no training for a kind of... There was no culture in him for an urban lifestyle.
0: His life was mapped out that he was going to stay and keep the farm down in West Cork. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And then so tell me about, the I don't want to make this about about the men. And I'm sure a lot of them went on and had fine lives afterwards. But you do write very movingly about a whole kind of generation of Irish men who headed off to England working buildings, agriculture, maybe. Existing on the margins of things, very lonely. Sad. I I I knew some of them at the end of the eighties. I used to go to the sites in, uh, yeah. in London in the summer, and I knew some of them still talking about going home someday. Oh yeah. The connection to home, yeah. though, was kind of you could tell. Oh, they had a sister back in Longford or something yeah. that they kept yeah. in touch with.
1: Desperately yeah. sad. Yeah, desperately sad. Um, in fact, I I read the audio. Book out loud, well, obviously, out loud, how would it? I it <laughs> um I took two days, and by the end of it, um when I got to the jackie bit, i was uh, I found myself crying i you know I was so disturbed again by recognizing the waste, the loss, and the waste. It's just sort of unbearable.
0: yeah, just paint a quick picture of of his life as you saw it over there
1: well what i think happened is that he um went first of all living in kind of Camden town kentish town uh, but he was he had no training for kind of um, jockeying for job on the building sites he was just not a, a, interested he was a bit too old as well he was in his mid to late 30s at this point and you know most of the people who were managing well on the building sites were you know coming over at age 20 25 okay. um so he He moved out to agricultural work in kind of Essex and Suffolk. Um, And uh, yeah, this is hard to talk about. Um, So I found a death record for him uh, from 1972, which says that he was born in about 1920. So he clearly was living completely under the radar. There was no kind of passport. I I, I, I guess he hadn't, uh, he didn't have any any uh kind of engage he wasn't engaged at all with um with english society you, you know
0: yeah okay so he never came home again no he never came home again no he couldn't come back again no no okay.
1: so I, you know that is one of i i think often we think of the kind of double standards of these stories like you know it was the women who bore all the all the suffering and Certainly, I don't want to underestimate that, Mm -hmm. but I think that many of the men suffered terribly as well.
0: Okay, so we go back to Lily in Bessborough has a daughter, Mary. Now, so Lily's essentially told that Mary will not be good for adoption. There's an element that Lily and and maybe your grandmother had it as well, is kind of not good stock.
1: Well, she, she had a, a bad arm. Um, it turned out to be, or I recently discovered that uh, she was a breech baby and a bone setter had set the bone badly, but it meant that she, she was basically, you know, one arm was, was not usable. This is Lily, the mother yeah, of the yeah. baby. Yeah, and I think probably that um, set things up wrongly for uh, adoption, you know, which means that everybody had a notion of bad stock. You, you know, I, I'd say American adoptee, uh, uh, adoptive parents would say, no, I don't really... I, I don't think we're talking about these notions of stock being kind of limited to, yeah. uh, you know, rural Ireland at all.
0: So when did you find out about um, Lily having... What Was your your cousin, Mary, in Bessborough, when did you find this out? Uh,
1: when I was in my 20s, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: So were were the women in your family told things at a particular point? Is that how it worked? It was passed down. Each generation would be told the secrets when they were old enough.
1: Uh, I don't know that it happened like that. I I had just had a baby uh, on my own also. So that may be why why I was told. Well, I think it is, was why I was told. And um, I found it very hard to come to terms with. Um, And... I talked to my mother about it quite a lot at the time and I wanted her at that time to express the shock that I felt. I was really upset with my mother because I was just appalled by this story of a cousin I didn't know, hidden, hidden, basically hidden away. Um, And my mother didn't express that shock. Instead, she said things like, they were Victorians. They, they did things differently. It wouldn't have worked, things like that. And for a long time, I sort of couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear That's how my mother thought about it. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's true. Um, writing this book has made me have much greater sympathy with my mother's view i have tried in this book to come to terms with why families did this and how few options they had how, how what little choice and how good people my grandmother was a good person mm-hmm. a courageous person who'd suffered a great deal and suffered through this choice but she didn't have another choice she really she made a terrible mistake
0: mm-hmm.
1: But she was at some level forced to make that mistake. Mm -hmm. There were no other options or there were very few other options for women with her kinds of resources. And I guess I want to say that I've written the book not to, you know, expose the story of my grandmother, but to try and think about like everyone's grandmother, your grandmother. Um, There were 57,000 children born in the mother and baby homes at the lowest estimate, more like 70,000 probably, if you count all of the smaller homes. You know, all those people had grandparents. They all had, you know, maybe three or four grandparents each. Uh, They had mothers and fathers and siblings and aunts and uncles. There were nuns working in these institutions. There were county council people working in these Mm -hmm. institutions. In the 1960s, the population of Ireland is 2.5 million Think of the the number of those two and a half million. I don't think there is a family in yeah. Ireland that is not touched by this by this history.
0: It's interesting what you say about the the breadth of people that were in on it, because we have this notion that there was church and there was state and there was society, and there were three distinct things kind of impacting on each other. Tell me about going to the door. So you decided to find out more about Lily and Mary. You went down to the convent in Clannacilty. This is the convent that would be attached to the, the formerly the workhouse, the county home. Uh, and the industrial was, school and the industrial school. You went and you knocked at the door of the convent. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I'd already rung before. Yeah. And I'd said that I w- wanted to find out if possible anything more about my cousin and the, the woman I spoke to said she could show me the record of admittance. So I I went and I was terribly nervous. Um, This was in the mid-90s. And I knocked on the door and a woman opened and I started to say again, my name's Claire Wills. And she put out her hand to stop me and she said, I was at school with your mother. And I, you know, I just, it took me, I, I couldn't take it in. Yeah. But it was evidence. I didn't understand it then. But it was such clear evidence that we're talking about a whole knitted together community. Nuns, families, everyone knitted together.
0: Yeah, yeah. The nuns weren't aliens. Like they Absolutely. they were of, of the community. Um, so what did you find out about what became of your cousin Mary?
1: Mary's story is very sad. Um, she went to England and... Uh, I think. I'm not entirely sure. but So grew
0: up in the the industrial school, the county home down in Clarny, yeah? Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I I lose the story for a little bit. I'm not quite sure. But I know that by her mid-twenties, she's living in England. um, And she... I don't even want to say this. I find it so upsetting. But um, she got pregnant and um, killed herself in 1980. And I think that that is kind of one of the sort of violent, viol- most violent aspects of of those institutions. She, bro- she was brought up without a family and she couldn't bear to think of that happening again, is what I'm guessing. must have gone through yeah. her mind.
0: And she, she had, you think, she had uh, become pregnant by an Indian doctor, you think, and you think that his Indian family... Had kind of basically, yeah, but,
1: but not I was accepted. just told that once. That's yeah. the best okay. evidence I okay. have, and I don't have much of it.
0: When when did you get pregnant outside of marriage?
1: <laughs> I was twenty five, actually, same as Mary, and uh, my my situation was completely different. Um, but
0: but in the same era. As, oh yeah, as Mary, in the 80s. roughly, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So your cousin got pregnant yeah. and. What happened to her was like some kind of a continuation of the of the dark yeah. past. You got pregnant
1: a around the same time, later. but in
0: another world entirely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, there was absolutely no question that my mother would, and my both my parents were not going to accept and love my their grandchild. Um, And I guess I want to say, I don't think that there was any question that if my grandmother and, you know, Irish grandmothers had been given the opportunity to love and accept their children, they would have done so. They would have done so.
0: Of course. Yeah, of course. And sure, look, as you say, it was the natural way of things before officialdom started poking its nose in. Yeah. People got on with things. Yeah. Yeah. How did your grandmother Molly live with her decision afterwards? Like you, I think you don't quite say that 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 decision, not a a free choice, a forced choice, I guess, destroyed the family, but it scattered the family. And she did live to 1980. So she was alive when Mary, the granddaughter that she never kind of accepted or never saw, took her own life. Do you think Molly was tortured by that for the rest of her life, by all of it?
1: I cannot say. You know, I've tried to be... One of the difficulties, you know, I said at the beginning of when we started the talk, what I wanted to find out was how, why people accepted the institutions. But I can only... There are no records of that. You're not going to find anyone writing down, I sent my daughter to the institution because. So all I can do is try and investigate the tiny bits of stories that that I have access to. And at one level, I I feel embarrassed that this is one family's story because I think it's every family's story. Mm -hmm. But we can only tell these stories by looking at the evidence that each of us has. In the book, I have tried to use my own feelings of shame as a clue to how other people might have felt in the past. You know, I think it's we have to make ourselves as vulnerable as we can to kind of open ourselves up to what people might have felt. But I'm only, in the end, I'm guessing. I'm guessing about my grandmother. I think she was a very loving and courageous woman, and she suffered through the decisions she had to make.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, you say, about your own shame. I think you say in the book that the shame now, the shame is not about like people having sex outside of marriage and everything. The shame now is is what what was done to them,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think secrets i I argue in the book that at one point secret keeping was a form of care. And then later on, it became a kind of dangerous thing because it became institutionalized or or bureaucratized. Once you've got a bureaucracy to solve your problem, you you know, you're you're losing contact with humanity. But I don't think it's gone. I think I think that sense of let's not talk about it really uh, is still there. And you know what I think? I think that is stopping us understand this history with compassion. We will end up always thinking in terms of blame and wrongdoing, and, and uh, you know, oh, they did that, or they, okay. the church did that. Unless we try and approach that history, th- understanding with understanding and compassion rather than finger pointing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Listen, tell me about your mother. <laughs> She's kind of central to this whole project in a way that I feel like, I I feel like a half know your mother, right? (laughs) She kind of half told you a lot of the story. Everyone will recognise bits of this now. She's throwing out breadcrumbs to you all the time and kind of, you know, just bits and pieces and go, sure, I don't know, like, and kind of lets you go off and find things out for yourself, even things she knew already and everything. But she wanted the story told, did she? She wanted the secrets told.
1: Well, of course, if you asked her now, she would say no, <laughs> because she's <laughs> my mother. But um, she did, I think, she, particularly through the pandemic, I think, we, you know, I spent a lot of time with her. And I think she was fed up with the secrets, still still holding on to secrets that she she felt needed to be opened up. Because secrets had been a form of care, and then mm-hmm. they became this kind of um, a break on on communication. so she did she, she she asked me to look up records for her, which she knew would take <laughs> me to understanding something about yeah. you know when my grandmother got married and so on. She, she was definitely pushing me on.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're tough as nails, that generation, too, aren't they? They are. Um, Listen, that's not a simple story. And uh, and you're not giving simple answers and everything, but it's an extraordinary... uh, I think it's a new lens now of looking at that whole thing. I think uh, it's... a. a, John Banville was here last week and uh, he asked him about books and the one book he mentioned was yours and he said a very important book. And an important book can sound like a a dull book or whatever, a book he should read, but it's an important book in the sense that probably everybody... uh, would read it rather than should read it, um, and I see in the in the Financial Times today they've called it close to perfect. Uh, At last, a compassionate and realistic way of looking at what happened in the past, says somebody here. I admire my grandmother, says another texter. One of her daughters, my aunt got pregnant. My grandmother kept the baby. My aunt raised the child, made no apology for it. That was 70 years ago, very different time. I look, look, lots of stories. The number of miraculous conceptions happening over the years in Ireland, presumably (laughs) Ernest, the name of the Ireland of saints and scholars, shameful mistreatment of fellow human beings, uh, says Ruth. Um, Okay, I'm going to read this there's a longer one there I'm going to read it properly during the break and I might read it afterwards. Um Claire Wills, thank you very much. The book is called Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets. It's published by Penguin and Claire, you'll be speaking about the book at the Dublin Festival of History on Monday night at 6:30 p.m. in the Unitarian Church on Stephen's Green. Look, I know that even though you've wrote the book and you've written the book and you've talked about this a little bit I know that wasn't easy for you. So thank you very much for you. your openness and your honesty, uh, Claire Wills. And uh, if you feel you would like to speak to anyone after listening to that, go to rte.ie forward slash helplines and any numbers you might need are there. We'll take a break.
1: Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1.